Welcome back, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. Mike Winters here from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Certainly coming to all of you this podcast during very, very challenging times, regardless of where in the world you're listening, you are confronting COVID-19. We very much are in the United States, and for all of you across the world, certainly we are in this together and combating a significant condition causing a significant amount of mortality and critical illness that we are being overwhelmed with in many of our emergency departments across the U.S. Now, recall that about two weeks ago, we had an update or did our first COVID-19 podcast. And coming back here a few weeks later, we are recording this on the evening of March 30th, 2020. So in the coming days, we'll get this posted, but understand that even in those coming days, our understanding of the condition, our treatment of the condition certainly may have evolved since the time of this recording. So please pay attention to that. We are going to have a handout certainly for the podcast on this discussion regarding a few of the key updates we'll have for you as well as some new practice parameters that have been published and some of our experience. So just take note that some of this may change over the coming days by the time that we record it and then you ultimately listen to it. Let me bring in my outstanding co-host here, Dr. Peter W., Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. John Greenwood. Peter, let me start with you. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing well, Mike. Doing well. Meeting the challenges in New Orleans, but have a spectacular team of providers who are really meeting the challenge at this point in time. Rob, how about you on the West Coast? Doing well as well. We have not quite hit our peak or surge but as of today, we have about 360 cases confirmed, and they're increasing by the day. We are not at a state where we are overwhelmed, but we are preparing. We're getting ready for the spike. John, how about you in Philly? Philadelphia right now is not so bad. We get daily emails from our data analytics team that suggests that we're about 18 days out from the initial surge with a plan going through early June. Understanding that this is going to take some time to get through or it's a lot of preparation. I think all of us have felt the increase in whether it's administrative work, planning work. So it's definitely been a lot. Uh, We've learned a lot along the way and are excited to take care of some ill patients, but certainly it's going to be a challenge. Speaking of that administrative burden, preparation, planning, I can't envision that there isn't anyone out there listening to the podcast that hasn't been working in overdrive, overtime mode, putting in 13, 14, 15, and even more hours every day in preparation for the surge, listening to our colleagues from around the world talk about their experiences, really trying to prepare for the large volumes that certainly we are going to see very, very soon here in the U.S. And to that end, before we actually delve into some clinical topics, we were chatting ahead of the podcast and going to turn to you, Peter, for some very sage words of wisdom as kind of backing out and taking a look at the forest, I guess, from the trees, because we're very much at that weed granular level working out all these details. And maybe if you can start us off, I think that would be the things that you said ahead of time, I think are very, very important for our listeners to hear. I think it's important that we all realize from a perspective standpoint that this is not a sprint, but in fact, it's a marathon. And you heard John allude to a kind of four-month-plus duration of this crisis that we're all going to be facing. And having understood that, we're hardwired 
to run towards disaster. And that's just fine if it was a secular moment or a single moment. But in fact, these are going to be four months of these moments. And so if we aren't tuned into our own personal self-care, then we're not going to be great for our patients. And I think it's important for us to understand that when we're not in the mix, we need to be tuned out, turned off from all media, everything else, so that we get our personal time together. Our families deserve it, we deserve it, and ultimately our patients deserve it because we'll be better for it if we take care of ourselves before getting back into the mix. It's tremendously important work that we do and we have to be at our best. But again, we're used to running towards the disaster and in fact, we can do that, but we have to pace ourselves. Again, this will be a four month plus event for all of us. I think those are very, very wise words, Peter. So thanks for getting us started here on this podcast with that. I think it's extremely important to kind of let that bake in and set in as we buckle up, really, for the next few months. Well, since our last update, there have been a number of articles, a plethora of literature, a plethora of social media as folks, providers from around the globe are really communicating on what's working and what may not be working in the management of certainly the critically ill patient with COVID-19. In the last several days, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has about guidelines on the management of critically ill adults with coronavirus disease 2019. We've had a few other international agencies. Those in England have also put out some guidelines on the role of select components of the management, say the non-invasive respiratory support. And then we've had some additional literature on simply just managing patients with ARDS and either liberal or conservative oxygen therapy. We're going to touch on much of those pieces of newer literature and discussion as we go through the podcast. And while we're going to focus a little bit more so on the ventilatory component and fluid management of once patients get intubated, let me start off here with some updates on supplemental O2, high-flow nasal cannula, and non-invasive ventilation. In terms of our last podcast and what many of you have heard in recent days, certainly there is this overall framework that in patients with COVID-19, really downplaying the utilization of non-invasive ventilation because of the risk of aerosolization of the virus and moving towards an earlier intubation strategy. Now to that end, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has put out their guidelines, they're recommending that when patients present with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 infection and their pulse oximetry readings are less than 90%, providing them with supplemental O2. In terms of targets, perhaps maintaining a pulse oximetry reading no higher than 96%, and then in patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, so they're not maintaining saturations with just a little supplemental O2, the SSC actually recommends, it's a weak recommendation, but considering high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation. Now, to that end, just in the last, I'd say, 48 to 72 hours, the NHS in England has put out their statements where they are not advocating the use of high-flow nasal cannula based upon the lack of efficacy in terms of the inf potential infection spread. But they're stating that in terms of non-invasive, looking at the Italian data, the Italian experience, perhaps non-invasive ventilation may prevent some of these patients from going on to be intubated with a very, very high mortality. And what they're suggesting is actually CPAP 
would be the preferred form of non-invasive ventilation. Now, John, let me turn to you. You also sent me some literature. Now, this admittedly was from the manufacturer of a high-flow nasal cannula device, but just in terms of speaking of high-flow nasal cannula, it does appear that there is a fair amount of particles that travel a reasonable distance from patients while they're receiving this therapy. Let me ask first your thoughts on that high-flow nasal cannula, your thoughts on where you're currently thinking about non-invasive ventilation, if at all, and then what your experience has been thus far. Sure, Mike. Yes, this absolutely was published by a high-flow nasal cannula company, specifically Vapotherm. But to be honest, the article is actually a really interesting read. For those, we'll put the actual citation in the references. But what they do is they go on to look at uh, particle dispersion, specifically of secretion and aerosolization, and they compare their device, the high-flow nasal cannula device, versus standard nasal cannula at lower flow, six liters, and they also look at it compared to BiPAP. And interestingly honest, I thought, report, and certainly I think the data bent towards some benefit from high-flow nasal cannula, but if you actually read it, it just says that there is a significant aerosolization of respiratory secretion. So specifically, they looked at 40 liters a minute, and this is obviously in addition to a face mask. So for any patient who's roomed with suspected COVID-19, they're given a face mask and oxygen, whether it's nasal cannula or whatever, is put underneath of a face mask. They found 83.2% of particle mass is captured and terminated within the mask itself. So this is on 40 liters nasal cannula. So that's close to 20% of particles that don't get captured. So that's fairly significant in my opinion. And they compared that to about 74% captured a mask while on low flow oxygen of six liters a minute and 87% for patients who are taking tidal volume breaths. Now, it's important to note that the particles that escaped during the mask with high flow actually had a longer travel length that was greater than a meter. So if we're not practicing metric system in good distance of at least around three feet or so, so 16% of aerosolized particles travel greater than at least three feet. So what that says to me is high flow, even if you choose to do low flow, high flow nasal cannula, there's a significant risk of aerosolization. And I think the last point to take away from that is if the patient's breathing tidal volume breaths in a room without a surgical mask, and just high flow alone, 31% of the particle mass leaving the nose and mouth will basically land greater than a meter from the face. So my takeaways from that were, number one, always keep a mask on the patient, but two, recognize that there is significant aerosolization, even if you're using high flow or regular nasal cannula. And so it's something definitely worth thinking about. Now at our institution locally, we've done a couple of things. So we in general have adopted a fairly aggressive intubation strategy. So if the patient's failing six liters, you could consider low flow, high flow nasal cannula, 20 liters a minute up to 60% FiO2. But I think in general, there's a stronger push towards early intubation. We're limiting BiPAP to only those who are on chronic BiPAP, but again, suggesting to avoid it. And this is while we have ventilators readily available that may change if resources become scarce. But this was a nice little article that, despite showing maybe more efficacy over regular nasal cannula, just stated the obvious that there's significant aerosolization from the patients with high-flow nasal cannula. So that's pretty much where we stand at University of Pennsylvania, is really limiting the use of either high-flow nasal cannula or BiPAP and suggesting earlier intubation as of March 
30th, 2029. Well, Peter, <laughs> let me turn to your experience and your thoughts coming out of New Orleans, because that certainly has, in the last several days, become increasing incidence and prevalence in your area. Thoughts on where we stand now with high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation? So we almost perfectly mirror what John is doing in Philadelphia. We have discouraged the use of non-invasive ventilation in the ED for the simple fact of there's lots of people going in and out of the room. We thought that the risk-benefit ratio is just not there. Now, different ballgame, if you're chronically on CPAP or BiPAP at home, we would continue that. In the ICU, once you're stable and we have everything under control, we use a little bit more of both. And we've not had any downturn with that, but we've kind of shied away from it in the emergency department where resources and the number of fluctuations in the room were so great. So the exposure to the providers were not acceptable to us. All right. Sounds good. And then Rob, your experience on the West Coast. I'd say it's pretty similar similar in terms of using less BiPAP and high flow. The one caveat I would say to add to that discussion is that we shouldn't completely throw away non-invasive ventilation in the ED right now. I mean, there are cases like people who come in with clear pulmonary edema, or as the two of you said before, patients who have pre-existing need for non-invasive ventilation so I would say that, yeah, we're discouraging or we're moving away from non-invasive ventilation in people who may have COVID if they have any sort of signs or symptoms of COVID. But I would caution to not completely throw it away in other groups like that CHFR. Because if we start completely discarding non-invasive ventilation for those other cases, we're going to eat up our ICU beds with patients that we intubate for pulmonary edema and things like that. I agree with that. Yep, good points. Well, let's transition from the non-invasive now where the patient's continuing to decline rapidly. And as many of you have experienced, this is a fairly abrupt decline. Moving on to intubation, we touched on that during our last COVID-19 podcast. Not sure that there's new things to say, just as a reminder recommending the utilization of video laryngoscopy over direct laryngoscopy, trying to minimize personnel in the room, having the person intubating being that most experienced person with airway management in order to minimize any attempts and potential risk of transmission. There's been a lot about the utilization of placing perhaps clear drapes over patients and then some very artistic or I guess mechanical engineering in the sense that intubating boxes that are kind of slid over or positioned over the patient with, I guess, armholes and various contraptions. Let me just leave it at that in terms of intubating to decrease risk of transmission and aerosolization and contact with the intubator. Guys, let me just ask you, intubation-wise, any pearls or potential pitfalls that you've encountered at your institutions? Peter, let me go to you first. Some of the pearls that we've benefited from, we created a strike team from anesthesiologists and CRNAs who come in and manage the airway, whether it's in the ICU or in other areas. The ED is still intubating, but the strike team handles the floor and the ICU, and that has freed up other folks to do other jobs. It's worked very well. That's great to hear. Rob, how about any pearls on your end? Yeah, we're similar in that regard. 
we in the ED are still obviously doing all of our own intubations. We do have it restricted now to our senior level residents and or the attendings. So we're not allowing interns or second years to intubate these patients. And we otherwise, on the floors in our ICU, we have a similar type of team that comes to manage the airway. And John? Yeah, so I can say in our emergency department, similar experience. So we've met with our anesthesia colleagues as well, because we've had a couple days where there've been simultaneous intubations going on three at a time one day. And it was really a challenge for our clinical pharmacists as well as our clinical team. So coordinating with our anesthesia department to have an available resource for backup should multiple intubations arise at the same time again. They've been wonderful. So certainly agree with Rob about having the most experienced people intubating. We're basically allotting our senior level residents and attendings only to be intubating suspected COVID PYs. And then if I could editorialize for just 30 seconds about these contraptions, I don't know about you guys, but I think these are insane in some ways can be potentially dangerous to our clinical teams. We've introduced one simple thing being the bacterial viral filter when bagging a patient on the end of the ET tube. And we've in-serviced our trainees as well as our attendings. And even that simple introduction of a new piece of equipment, we've had a couple QI events where people weren't sure how to attach them. And to introduce any new equipment during a period of stress or high intensity, I think increases our chances for error. And this is just my personal opinion, but every time I've been asked about this from a critical care leadership standpoint or anything, I've made a strong recommendation of please don't. It's just going to potentially confuse people, introduce technical challenges. So we're really avoiding these at all costs. I think that's incredibly important to point out, John. So thanks for saying that. I completely agree with that, John. It seems like there's a ton of confusion right now, and every day there's a new protocol or a new step, and introducing various things that we're not used to using can make things worse. I think that was an outstanding point, John. Well said, both of you. Well, let's transition into ventilation. And Peter, I'm going to let you drive a lot of this in terms of ventilation. We've talked kind of at a high level of our last podcast about lung protective, low tidal volume ventilation strategies, following plateau pressures, balancing PEEP and FiO2, and then we'll get into fluids in a little bit. But you sent us many days ago just an outstanding algorithm that you've implemented across your sites. And maybe you can just kind of walk us through, talk us through the key and big ticket items in terms of ventilatory strategy for these patients who have developed ARDS. Sure. So I just want to give a shout out to my folks here, David Jans with LSU Pulmonary Critical Care, Nirv Patel, our CMO, who's critical care and ID, and my son, Joshua, who kind of put together this algorithm. On the ventilatory side of things, it's low tidal volume and not usually really stressing the use of ARDSnet. So tidal volumes, four to six cc's per kilogram, predicted body weight, and then fluctuating that based on pHs, and the algorithm's pretty clear. They use a PEEP FiO2 ARDSnet driver that's really helped us. We've used SATs and FiO2. So if the SAT's less than 96% and the FiO2 is greater than 55%, that's our trigger for prone positioning. And then we'll go ahead and prone those patients 12 to 16 hours a day. And in fact, we created a team that all they do is come to the ED and flip the patients. They're the prone team. 
and they're the flippers. And that's all that they do through the whole ICU. So they're very expert at it. And again, we created our own contradiction list to prone positioning, like who to avoid this on. And if the SAT FiO2 ratio is greater than 150 or they're on the high PEEP ladder, we don't do it. If they're on either hemodialysis or ultrafiltration, we don't prone. If they're morbidly obese, we avoid it because we've had some extubations in the past with this. And so the number that we use is right around 300 pounds. And if they've had hemodynamic decompensation during proning or flipping, we avoid it. We wean the FiO2 and the PEEP based on SATs, maintaining SATs greater than or equal to 88% if we're proning you. That's typically our approach. We've had some pretty strong success with that. Let me ask a follow-up question. A few folks have asked about what is meant when we use the term high or low PEEP strategy. Are you able to expand upon that, Peter? So what we've done is in the handouts for this podcast, we'll include the ArtsNet tables for individuals to follow as a guide, and it will help delineate the pathway to follow for the patients. Absolutely. Now, in terms of the FiO2, in terms of oxygenation, it's a huge, probably one of the main clinical features in these patients that we see manifest. We've talked over the past several years about conservative or liberal oxygenation strategies. So let me turn this over to Rob. Rob, there's a study that just got published, I think about two, maybe two and a half weeks ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at conservative versus liberal oxygenation strategy in patients with ARDS. Can you bring us up to speed on this latest hot off the press piece of literature? Yes, this is a study out of France. It was conducted, it was multi-center randomized open-label trial conducted in multiple ICUs in France. And I think it's important to discuss this article that just came out because it may relate to our management of our ARDS COVID patients. And the findings directly contradict the recommendations from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and some other recommendations. So the objective of this study was to determine whether conservative oxygenation, in other words, low targeted O2 sats oxygenation, compared to usual liberal oxygenation strategy, a liberal oxygenation strategy would reduce 28-day mortality among patients early in their course of ARDS. And so the inclusions were intubated patients who were receiving mechanical ventilation for less than 12 hours and had ARDS. And they were randomized to two groups. The conservative oxygen group had a PaO2 target of 55 to 70 millimeters of mercury of oxygen. And the liberal oxygen group had a PaO2 target of 90 to 105 millimeters of mercury of oxygen. And they were randomized according to each center and they had to be enrolled within the first 12 hours of meeting those inclusion criteria of ARDS and intubated. In addition to this, they used standard ARDS protocols. They recommended AC mode instead of volume control mode, but that was not mandated. They, of course, used six cc's per kilo, body weight, ventilation, tidal volumes. They had PEEP adjustments according to typical ARDS protocols that recommended neuromuscular blockade and prone positioning for patients as according to standard sort of ARDS protocols. And their primary outcome was death from any cause at 28 days. 
And so they enrolled 205 patients evenly split between the two groups. The baseline characteristics of the two groups were similar and that there was no difference in baseline severity of ARDS. And their findings were that 28-day mortality was not significantly different between the two groups. The mortality in the conservative group was 34.3% compared to the liberal oxygenation group of 26.5%. However, the 90-day mortality was significantly higher in the conservative O2 group. Again, the conservative O2 group is the lower O2 saturation group. So they did find a significant difference in terms of 90-day mortality. There were some limitations. This was an open-label trial. Investigators were aware of the interventions, and targeting the PaO2 of 55 millimeters of mercury might have exposed patients to unexpectedly lower arterial oxygen saturation levels. But in the end, they stopped the trial early because of safety concerns, and their conclusions were that a conservative oxygen strategy, in other words, the lower O2 saturation strategy, during the first seven days of mechanical ventilation did not reduce 28-day mortality. And there was some worrisome signal about increased mortality at 90 days in the conservative oxygenation strategy group. And looking at the data, they found that they had a higher incidence of mesenteric ischemia in this conservative oxygen group. This is an important study to consider because in other critical care scenarios, certainly in terms of how we treat post-brain injury patients, post-stroke injury patients, MI patients, the lower saturation, lower oxygen groups have done better in terms of outcomes. And this is kind of the first trial that I know of that may show that we should not be shooting for lower oxygen saturations in an ARDS group. So Rob, let me ask you, in the current environment, you have an intubated COVID patient in the ICU. What are you going to titrate that PEEP FiO2 to? What goal saturation are you going to aim for or PaO2 value? You know, before this study came out, and again, this study literally came out within the past two weeks, I was shooting for saturations targeting about 92%, more or less, keeping it between 90 and 94%. Now I have second thoughts and I'm targeting between really 94 and 97%. And I still do not think it makes sense to oversaturate these patients, but I've readjusted my threshold or my target to around 94, 95%. I've seen other articles and thoughts on that protocols right around that 94 to 96%. Peter and then John, what are you guys doing at your institutions? So we're still maintaining it less than or equal to 96%. That's our goal for these folks. Same here. We're about 92 to 94% PO2s. It depends on their age and comorbidities, I think, but can be anywhere from 60 to 100. But again, it kind of depends on comorbidities and the individual patient too. All right. Well, let's kind of come down the home stretch here, kind of wrap up on this discussion. We've talked a lot about ventilator management and the key critical things. One last thing I want to maybe, John, have you start the discussion on, give us your thoughts Prior to COVID-19, many weeks ago, many months ago for some of our international colleagues, a patient comes in febrile, they're looking like they have pneumonia. We'd pull the sepsis trigger and in many cases, 
large volume fluid resuscitation. I know it's a little bit of a leading question, but how are we changing that in the management of these patients with COVID-19? Where should we be on the fluid management standpoint? Yeah, it's a great question, Mike, and I'll try to tie in some of the SSC recommendations as well. But as we're learning more about the progression of the disease, it appears around seven days or so after the initial onset of symptoms that eventually patients who go on to develop ARDS have this massive cytokine storm, which leads to capillary leak. And those are the patients that are going to be presenting to our emergency department. So in general, I think the concept of really focusing on whether or not this patient needs fluids is going to be critical. And so currently, the SSC recommendations were to use dynamic markers over static markers, which we all have become comfortable with, and including capillary refill time, following along with the Andromeda shock recommendations. So really just focusing on end organ perfusion and whether or not cardiac output's low, really dialing back our fluid resuscitation to a more conservative strategy still recommending crystalloids over colloids, which was a strong recommendation. The remainder are fairly weak and then balanced over unbalanced crystalloids. So for me and how I'm changing my practice or maybe just continuing my practice are to limit the amount of fluids, utilizing ultrasound if available or pulse pressure variation, capillary refill, and early vasopressors, first choice being, well, we'll talk about that, but norepinephrine for me if uh, the patient's hypotensive. Peter, let me turn to you. Fluid management, your protocol. Fluid management, what's worked for us is really typically running them dry. And what do I mean by that? It's kind of hinged on the vasopressors. If we're not requiring vasopressors, then we administer Lasix at a dose of 40 times the creatinine, and we give that every 12 hours. The goal is to make them pee. If they're on low-dose vasopressors, we administer Lasix at a dose of 40 times the creatinine every 24 hours. So not twice a day, but once a day. On high-dose vasopressors, we don't use Lasix. Again, our goal, we've seen if our patients can pee, they tend to be much better off if they're requiring hemodialysis, they go in a different mortality bucket for us here. Not that it's not survivable, but it ups the ante considerably. Well said. And then Rob, bring us home. I'm in the same camp. I am pretty aggressive now about trying to keep them fluid negative if I can. And I completely agree about the point that even if they have some renal insufficiency or their creatinine is starting to bump, you're better off for patients like this who are in ARDS, trying to keep them going in terms of urine output. And so I tend to use a little bit more LASIK strips in some of these patients. But again, my goal is to try and keep them dry. All right, gentlemen, that was an outstanding discussion. I think it's time to close out here. John, let me turn to you first. As we sit here Sunday, March 30th, any final pearls for this particular recording as it stands now? I think for me, we'll start from just reminders at the beginning, really keep track of how we're managing that patient early on in terms of their hypoxemia. It appears that the trajectory of a patient who's severely hypoxemic will continue that way. And we want to minimize the risk to our colleagues, our own healthcare workers, in terms of contracting any sort of viral infection. So if your hospital is encouraging you to move away from what we would normally do for patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure, which is starting with non-invasive, I would strongly consider following along with that. It's okay to intubate a patient early. 
as long as the resources are available, and that may change, but leaning away from high flow and BiPAP and CPAP for most patients, I think, is a reasonable strategy. Great pearls, Rob. Your pearls to wrap up this discussion. I love what John said. Again, I still kind of feel that we cannot completely throw away non-invasive ventilation. And it depends on what percentage of your patients in your population are COVID positive. So like if you're in a community where you haven't really seen any COVID patients and there's not a big trajectory in that way, I would continue to use non-invasive ventilation for its standard uses. Again, avoiding it if the patient has signs of pneumonia or something like that. But we early on were not seeing very many patients that had COVID. It's picked up a lot for us now. And I think that you've got to kind of tailor your strategy, basically, to the prevalence of the disease in your population. And Peter, final thoughts. Yeah, just final thoughts. We're living in a very unusual time. The terms that we use liberally here is fluid and dynamic. So this is March 30th. The one thing you can be assured of is probably in two weeks, this will be tweaked just a little bit. Not that it's outdated. We'll just have more information, better care. So I would just be tuned into that. Thanks, gentlemen, for an extremely informative and really beneficial podcast. We certainly want to extend our best wishes to all of our colleagues across the globe. We are all in this together. And as Peter started off our podcast recording, know that this is a marathon. And please, please look out for one another and take care of yourself. We will look forward to talking to you on our next Critical Care Perspectives and Emergency podcast. Once again, this is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. We will talk to you next time. Bye for now.